0: Welcome to Irish Exit Everything. My name is Frank, and I thought that we had maxed out on all the cities that we were going to have. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't expect anyone to be like, hey, a new city dropped this week. But apparently that's exactly what's happening. Uh, billionaire Mark Lore announced last year his plans to build a utopian city, probably in like Utah or something like that, called Tolosa which will be... Designed and built in a way to create wealth in a fair way, which I'm skeptical about. Because fair for who? Who gets to live in the city? Who gets to create the wealth? How is that wealth actually created? Uh, the US in particular is super exclusive about our space, especially in our cities. 83% of the US population lives in urban areas, and that's only going to increase. The issue is that cities have historically been designed and built and maintained to benefit a certain kind of person white men and exclude basically everyone else on the basis of race gender class ability and so if we're going to build new cities or build back better then we need to do it in a feminist way because the feminist way is way more inclusive And so my guest for the second episode in the Exit Strategy series is Leslie Kern, Ph.D. Leslie is the author of two books on gender and cities, including Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World, available at Verso Books. She's an associate professor of geography and environment and director of women's and gender studies at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick, Canada, Leslie's research has earned a Fulbright Visiting Scholar Award, a National Housing Studies Achievement Award, and several national multi-year grants. She's also an award-winning teacher. Leslie's writing has appeared in The Guardian, Fox, Bloomberg City Lab, and Refinery29. She's also an academic career coach, where she helps academics find meaning and joy in their work. Leslie's next book project is an intersectional guide to gentrification forthcoming from between the lines books later this year here's our conversation leslie 100,000 welcomes to you i greatly appreciate your time today thanks for inviting me happy to be here my pleasure and i gotta say as an award-winning scholar and author uh you're probably the most high-profile guest i've had on this podcast so i'm hoping i can keep you at least mildly entertained uh, throughout the chat <laughs>
1: Oh, well, that's it's an honor to be here. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you.
0: Um, so yeah, th- throughout your book, Feminist City, uh, you explain very clearly um, that in our capitalist patriarchal society, cities are designed uh, by men for men um, to prioritize the for-profit labor that takes place in, in the factories and office buildings, um, which has historically been dominated by men. And you explain that this isn't sustainable, uh, which is clear, but uh, you know, it doesn't support the, the unpaid and underpaid labor that makes all other labor possible. Um, doesn't support the domestic labor care work. I think one of the most interesting examples um, they talk about, well, interesting to me because I didn't really think about it that much um, is public transit and how uh, like buses and trains uh, are scheduled mostly to adhere to the the typical eight to five workday, which isn't really helpful for someone who is a parent who has to make like multiple erratic stops besides the fact that getting on a bus or a train with a stroller is a nightmare. Uh, And so throughout the book, uh, you help readers envision a more feminist city, uh, which reorganizes and reclaims urban spaces to prioritize those double shifts of paid and unpaid labor, which would actually benefit everyone in the long run. And so I want to get to what that feminist city looks like concretely. But first, uh, you talk about how reorganizing the city begins by examining the geography closest in. So I was hoping we could start there. What is the geography closest in?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for summarizing uh, the book and, and many of my main arguments so cogently. That was, that was lovely to hear, <laughs> So so succinct. The geography closest in is a term um, that that is borrowed from uh, poet Adrian rich and which has been taken up by other feminist geographers and basically it refers to uh, the body and the embodiment of all of the social relations that kind of coalesce to create these things that we call identities. My aim in kind of starting from the body, uh, you know, follows along feminist tradition of taking the personal and the intimately personal and connecting it to the political. It's also a cry for cities and the people that uh, plan them, design them, create policy around them to remember that human beings have bodies, that we are all always organic animal beings that have a wide range of needs everything from a place to go to the bathroom to the kind of higher level needs of you know love and and care and um nourishment of of all kinds but many people when we when we wander through our cities today it would be easy to uh forget that you know they were planned with humans in mind because many of those little creature comforts have been either stripped out of our cities or they uh, never existed in the first place. You know, as you said earlier, that sort of economic rationale for planning of kind of creating cities as, you know, profit engines and subsuming all possible uses of urban space towards a kind of profit making motive, I think has really. Uh, evacuated the, the human embodied element from it. And, you know, from a feminist perspective, the geography closest in is also thinking about uh, those bodies and, and needs that have been kind of most marginalized and most forgotten. And so clearly, I'm coming at this from a, a gender perspective, but we could also think about disability and sexuality and age and, and race as other factors where the differing needs of of people have been uh, ignored, made invisible, or just very much pushed to the margins of what is considered the norm in cities. So to the extent that a body is considered, it's been considered as some kind of average um, European slash North American, um, cisgendered, able-bodied white man's body, right everything right. from the temperature of office buildings to the you know height of a handrail to the strength that you need to push a revolving door is, is all calculated based on the idea that there is like an average male body and and everybody else is is just a deviation from that norm
0: right. yeah when you were listing those things like the the weight of a revolving door, I mean, I embody that that typical, person that you were uh, mentioning the the white cisgender heterosexual man and so like I in, in my ignorance and naivety I guess I didn't really think about that kind of stuff so and that's your point like someone who looks like me doesn't think about how that stuff affects others someone who doesn't look like me and so exactly and as we transition from the geography closest into the exterior built environment, um, one of my favorite things about imagining uh, what the future could look like is that there isn't one single solution. Um, but I'm wondering, what are some of your favorite examples of creating alternative spaces uh, in the city to, to better serve these marginalized groups and to better serve the, uh, the double shifts that we were talking about? Well, I think that
1: th- there is kind of a movement afoot in many cities to uh, recognize, as you say, the Importance of, of care labor, and the uh, you know this this manifests in certain material ways in different kinds of systems. So you mentioned public transportation early on, and, and this is an example where uh, cities are uh, starting to to make adjustments that recognize the differing patterns of travel of people who engage in care work. So this can include everything from creating space for strollers and um, young children on public transportation and creating more accessible public transit stations and vehicles so that people can easily get on and off with a stroller or that small children can, um, uh, you know, move uh, easily into those spaces. It's also about a kind of flexibility around routes and, and timing because people with caregiving responsibilities, tend to get on and off of public transportation more often, uh, have less linear journeys, and so everything from the way that your fare system works needs to uh, respect that so it doesn't cost people more to do that kind of uh, work or journeys, to um, the, the connectivity of the system so that everything isn't simply running in a straight line from the suburbs to the central city and back again, uh, but recognizing that neighborhoods need to be connected to one another. Um, One example that um, I I think it's the city of Sao Paulo, and this was completely unintentional, apparently on their part, but when they were designing some new metro lines, one of the lines goes in between uh, residential neighborhoods. What they found was that uh, the many, many thousands of domestic workers, right, who travel from residential neighborhood to residential neighborhood, cleaning houses, looking after kids, this was much more convenient for them because they didn't have to travel into the central city and then out again to another residential neighborhood. So it wasn't that they were planning for this, but in some of the the, the data that was, you know, gathered and looked at later, it was like, oh yeah, this actually works if, for for this large group of people. I mean, many people in cities in Latin America, many women work in in domestic work. It's a huge part of uh, their economy. So uh, planning for that uh, matters. Uh, I think, you know, during the pandemic, we saw a bit more of like a flexibility in how urban space can be used where um, this Push to be outdoors more as a kind of safer alternative to gathering indoors meant that cities were more willing to allow for things like food service to be set up outside, both like paid and you know unpaid or, or charity services. Um, bringing children outside for school activities, you know, finding ways to use our urban public spaces that support what we call you know social reproduction, right? All of those all of that labor and all of those activities that are about, um, you know, the continuation of of human life. So I, I think there's opportunity to kind of continue some of those, you know, I hesitate to call them innovations. They're not that radical, but like considering the direction that many cities have gone in over the last few decades of, you know, kind of being very closed off to those alternative uses to, to have a chance to um, bring those, those more like human level uses to public space has been encouraging.
0: Hey, you mentioned the, um, how during the pandemic, some restaurants kind of moved outside onto the sidewalk. And I think in the book you talk about um, how some restaurants had like those dome, like clear dome eating areas outside. So it's kind of like a weird paradox, like where you're outside, but you're also still like inside. And it also creates um, like a private public space. It's a, it's a weird paradox because if you have to pay, it's in public, we have to pay to be in that dome, to be eating that food, um, which is really kind of concerning. Like, even if you, when you're innovating, you're still like excluding others from this, what's supposed to be a public space. It's the sidewalk.
1: Definitely. and And I think, you know, as much as many of us kind of enjoy the outdoor dining experience and when we can afford to have it or uh, can access it, yeah, the kind of letting uh, private businesses take over more public space and essentially create more profit-making opportunities for them, potentially at the expense of people who might otherwise be using the sidewalk, either for mobility or sometimes people sit or sleep on the sidewalk or ask for money from uh, from a position on the sidewalk, um, and especially in cases where cities did not then like limit uh, car traffic, right? So if you keep car traffic the same and you take over the sidewalk, then that uh, makes things doubly difficult for anyone using a wheelchair or, or mobility device or cane uh, for, for uh, blind folks, anyone pushing a stroller, right? All, all of these things, the, the sidewalk becomes an obstacle course. And really limits uh, how people can use it. Now, if we take away space from cars, then I, I think okay, maybe we have a good compromise there.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be nice, um, especially yes. with the the climate crisis getting worse and worse uh, every single day. Exactly. Um, you warn readers uh, in your book that uh, creating these alternative spaces um, and building pockets of resistance shouldn't be confused with revitalization efforts and uh, beautification uh, projects, because that often leads to Gentrification and over policing. Um, so my next question is: How do we avoid that if if we can? Uh, how do we avoid gentrification and over policing as we build and rebuild feminist cities?
1: Well, I would be remiss if I didn't use this moment to plug my next book, which is all about gentrification and resistance strategies. But it's not coming out until September of 2022. So, as a little uh, preview, yeah, this question is uh, extremely an extremely thorny one right there's no kind of simple solution to this but um yes i definitely make the argument that gentrification as much as it on the surface seems to create like a safer cleaner more welcoming environment for people including women um that when we scratch beneath the surface of that we start to find that you know the 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 women that we're talking about there um include, you know, probably middle class, white, cisgendered, able-bodied women, professional women, and and so on, for whom, you know, the city is interested at least marginally in, in catering for, uh, but that many other women are going to find their environments to be less safe, less affordable, less accessible, more, more hostile to their paid and unpaid care labor. So what do we do about it? Well There's a number of strategies that cities uh, can use in their kind of dusty old toolbox of regulations that they've been very unwilling to dig into, but everything from uh, forms of rent control to um, affordable housing mandates for new developments, uh, to you know, eviction freezes, right? Again, we saw some of this happen during the pandemic. Much of it has kind of expired now, but it just shows that cities can do these things. They just haven't wanted to for for a very long period of time. Um, You know, we also could, uh, you know, focus on kind of uh, community resistance strategies, which um, involves everything from communities, you know, kind of taking uh, control of of their own housing through forming like community development uh, corporations, where from a nonprofit standpoint, they build new housing designed to keep people in the community, right, not to bring in gentrifiers. And and that can be, um, you know, a reasonably successful strategy. And, um, you know, the good old like grassroots activism of, of um, occupying or squatting uh, buildings or unoccupied housing, which we know is a huge problem in many cities where uh, investors buy up housing and it sits empty, right, as they wait until the optimal moment to sell it again and turn a profit. Meanwhile, people are living on the streets or in very precarious housing. So in cities like Oakland and Philadelphia, there are squatters movements where people, you know, took over some of these Um, unoccupied housing spaces and said housing should be for people, right? It shouldn't just be a vehicle for capital accumulation. And um, some victories have been won in those cities with uh, the cities stepping up to try to um, enforce these kind of anti-vacancy rules and to uh, create more more affordable housing. So there are things that can be done. Uh, We've been, I think, Gentrification has been such a juggernaut that it's hard sometimes to see that it's not inevitable, but, uh, you know, if we kind of attune ourselves to examples, people have been fighting back against it uh, all around the world, and definitely my my book talks about, you know, anti-gentrification as a feminist movement, an anti-racist movement, and even an anti-colonial movement as well.
0: Great. And when I asked that question, I had no idea that you were working on, a, on another book. So i uh, definitely excited about that. Can I pre-order it? Is it ready for pre-order? I don't think it's ready for pre-order
1: yet. We're still finalizing the cover design. The book itself is done, but it just needs awesome. to be packaged.
0: <laughs> Looking forward to that. Um, there's a lots of lots of things that you said that can go in lots of different directions, um, but I kind of want to focus in on housing. You mentioned housing um, and in the book you talk about like condos and how even those kind of perpetuate this, this idea that you have to live in this traditional, uh, nuclear family, right? Like there are zoning laws that prevent like a bunch of different families from living in the same space. Um, and, uh, one of my favorite chapters in your book was city of friends. Uh, cause you talk about how like that's so fun to think about like, just like growing old with your friends and like, and you use the the golden girls as an example. Um, and unfortunately with the tragic passing of Betty White, um, you know, that was an, an unfortunate thing. Um, but, uh, I just love that example of the golden girls. Cause I like imagining, yeah, growing old with my friends and, and like in the house or something. And you mentioned that, you know, cities could, uh, let us do this type of thing, but they have like zoning laws that prevent it. Um, and so you mentioned community resistance and i mean yeah there's definitely uh, plenty of that but there needs to be more so how how can we encourage more of that community resistance
1: well i think one of the things that we're noticing is that people are are kind of taking things into their own hands you know uh, notwithstanding that, that that some places do in fact make it quite difficult for these things to happen but you know, I kind of open up the news and I see these stories of like older uh, single folks or even couples uh, banding together to buy a a relatively large piece of property more than they would need for just themselves. And, you know, sharing it with others to create their kind of own, whether it's like a little senior living complex or to bring in like multiple generations of the family uh, to try to you know, support one another. Not everybody as they age is ready to move into a long-term care home or needs that level of care. Uh, But being completely on your own or with just one other person is not necessarily the the safest way to live or the the most desirable way to live. So people are are finding ways to do that uh, themselves. I think there's also some movements towards what um, has been called co-housing, which is like uh, housing developments where um, families kind of, they, they have their own like living quarters or, you know, living and sleeping quarters and so on. But there are more shared spaces that's organized around like shared um, gardens and outdoor spaces. There's shared like laundry and cooking facilities, play areas for children, so that some of that labor can be um, distributed uh, amongst the group, and there's greater opportunity for socializing. I think this is also quite popular amongst uh, seniors, but definitely for like young families as well. It's a way to, um, you know, share some of that like childcare uh, labor that's that's happening. So I think, it, I think in North America, you know, there's not a ton of this kind of housing being built. There hasn't maybe seem to be a demand for it, but I do, um, I, I'm encouraged that that I think as people start to kind of question, especially with the, the effects of the pandemic, how well the single family home really works <laughs> for them and their lifestyle, there may be increased demand for different modes of housing. And if the demand is there, then developers will build it. Um, and, and, you know, we may start to see some interesting shifts.
0: Uh, hopefully. Uh, and I, I want to shift gears just a little bit um, because we talked about the, the double shifts of paid and unpaid labor and how the line between the two is often blurred, especially for marginalized groups. And I think the the push for remote work, especially during the pandemic, blurs that line even more. Um, and our bosses would just love to have us you know, at work at all times. So I was just wondering how you feel about remote work and uh, the future of labor in general.
1: I definitely have uh, mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, you know, women, some men probably have been pushing for things like this for a long time to allow for that flexibility around uh, family responsibilities and time in the office. And, you know, the, the, the story for so long from so many companies, governments, whatever, is no, 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 people need to be in the office, need, you know, we can't have that kind of flexibility. It was really seen as like a rare perk that people might either be able to work remotely or have uh, spent some of their time working remotely and some of the time in the office. So now that it's become uh, much more normalized, I think, okay, like, yeah, that does reflect a a kind of demand that people have uh, been clamoring for for a really long time. But as you say, it also opens the door to maybe other forms of exploitation where employers uh, expect ever more of our time, and it's now normal for them to encroach upon our personal lives. And where once upon a time you could say, "I have a sick child, I'm not coming into the office," um, and that was that. Now you're home with your sick child, but you're still expected to be, uh, you know, in your Zoom meetings, um, completing your your day's work. Um. So, so that is definitely an issue. I, I also wonder, in terms of you know women in the workplace. Um, women already, and I'm talking about kind of white collar workplaces here. We talking about like the service industry, where probably, you know, the majority of women, especially women of color and so on, work. It's a whole other issue. But even in the white collar workforce, women struggle to be noticed for promotion, to be given leadership opportunities, uh, tr- new training opportunities, pay raises, and if women become a little bit like invisible because they're not as present in the office. I, I worry that that will just kind of exacerbate what has already been a, a problem where women are sort of overlooked. So if we're not like physically there, uh, maybe we'll be even kind of more invisible in in the workplace. So those are a couple of the, the problems that come to mind. But as I say, I think we also have to, um, when we think about this question of remote work, it is there's an element of privilege there because there's a great many people, women included, for whom remote work will never be a possibility, um, whether because of they work kind of in, in manufacturing, in the service industry, in transportation, in all of these fields where uh, sitting behind your computer all day is, is never going to be
0: a possibility for them. Yeah, it is a very difficult situation. And yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about it either because um, yeah, on the one hand it's kind of enticing like oh, yeah I don't want to chill on my couch while I work but also like you said the invisibility aspect makes um, community resistance a lot more difficult when you're in at home um, and not outside with um, your fellow humans but um, yeah
1: I mean if it, you know unionization for example can be difficult I- enough but if you're um, you don't even have that kind of Regular in-person contact with your coworkers, um, whether it's unionization or just other forms of like collective resistance to exploitative workplace policies, or you know harassment or whatever it might be that you're pushing back against, might be harder to do that when you're even more sort of atomized, off in your own little pocket at home.
0: Definitely, and we saw last year with um, Striketober and um, Strikesgiving, like how important that is um, to organize together and make demands like that. Definitely. Yeah. Leslie, I love your book. Uh, I love chatting with you. Um, You end the book with a chapter called City of Possibility. And so I just want to thank you for helping me imagine what's possible uh, when building towards the future. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you today.